Inside Florida Politics, powered by Gannett. Trump takes another swipe at DeSantis as the former president revs up his dormant campaign. Lawmakers roll out a bill that would allow Floridians to carry guns without a concealed weapons permit. And the governor unveils his anti-woke higher education plan. Hello, I'm Sarasota Herald Tribune political editor Zach Anderson. And those are some of the stories I'll be discussing this week with Palm Beach Post politics editor Antonio Fins and Palm Beach Post politics reporter Stephanie Matat. But first... All right, Stephanie, welcome back to the show. Glad to have you back here. Um, that music means it's our pick a number segment. Did you bring a number for us this week? Yeah, I did bring a number and my number is 10,033. All right, 10,033. How about you, Antonio? What do you got for us this week? Well, you know, when uh, Stephanie goes low, I go high, 11,780. Uh, that, that is not uh, that much higher there. I think you guys are, are kind of in the ballpark there. Within, within a rounding, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure you're that far apart. Here. I'm talking about low. I am low here this week with an eight. So we got a, an eight uh, in the 10,000s and in the 11,000s, folks. Remember those numbers. We'll tell you what they mean in Florida politics at the end of the show. Well, after announcing in November that he's running for president for a third time, Trump's campaign went dormant for more than two months. He finally hit the campaign trail again with events over the weekend and couldn't resist taking another swipe at DeSantis, who he accused of trying to, quote, rewrite history on his COVID record. Trump said DeSantis, quote, promoted the vaccine as much as anyone. Antonio, it seems like Trump is finally realizing the advantage DeSantis might have on him with the GOP base when it comes to these uh, vaccine politics. Yeah, Zach, but, you know, it's gone well beyond vaccine politics. It's really across the board. On immigration, for example, you know, where DeSantis has garnered lots of airtime and accolades, as well as last, where the airlift of immigrants and refugees to Martha's Vineyard, you know, that, that has taken thunder away from Trump on border security talk, which was another issue that Trump had pretty much cornered. And look, listeners on this podcast will note that we predicted this. We said right after Trump's campaign announcement back in November that Trump's challenge in the first six months of 2023 would be that he would be he would be doing a lot of talking and DeSantis will be doing. And, and that is what is happening. DeSant- the Trump is talking and DeSantis is doing. Trump is talking about parental rights and education. OK, but as you've been covering, Zach, and, and we'll talk about later, DeSantis is actually remaking an entire university of the new college. Diddle for Second Amendment rights. Trump is talking, but it's DeSantis who will likely be signing legislation allowing people to carry weapons loaded, you know, weapons without a permit. Now, on COVID, the irony is that Trump is right. DeSantis did back back vaccinations. In fact, remember back in November 2020 when DeSantis dropped out of sight for a week or two? Remember when he reemerged and said he was strategizing the vaccine rollout? Among other things, he even went to the White House and appeared with Trump on a COVID and vaccine panel. But that, folks, is ancient history to a lot of people. The DeSantis of Floridians and Americans know is the one who has waged a war, woke war-like campaign against wearing masks and promoting the, the vaccine conspiracy theorists like his own Surgeon General. DeSantis has even dumped on Trump for the business shutdown in the spring of 2020. The governor basically disarmed that argument by saying he regrets going along with the White House, read Trump's leadership leadership and guidance on this. So yeah, Trump can say DeSantis flip-flop for changing his position on on an issue on, on COVID or whatnot. But well, you know, for Trump to say someone is changing their position on an issue, well, that's what the kettle said to the pot. Uh, Trump on an almost daily basis is posting polls showing him leading DeSantis and other possible Republican presidential hopefuls 
But in doing so, he kind of is unwittingly giving his potential rivals attention uh, because of the fact of the matter is two years ago or even a year ago, it didn't seem likely that Trump would have much competition, that he is now talking to polls showing him ahead of at least a handful of challengers. It self speaks to his eroded grip on the party. And a lot of it has to do because what you're seeing with with COVID and other issues that some of these Republicans are taking away from them. Yeah. And if anything, this this does show, don't you think, that DeSantis is really in his head? I mean, Trump it seems to be looking over his shoulder at the governor uh, of, of, uh, of the, the state where he lives, the popular governor who is, like you said, he's getting things done. I mean, he keeps pushing these policies uh, on higher education, on uh, other things where, you know, he's he has concrete uh, things to show where it, Trump is is really giving speeches and and uh, doing a lot of talk. I mean, you think that um, the the contrast here between DeSantis and Trump is is really got him worried? Yeah, this is almost like uh, remember back in in the summer of 2019 with the whole perfect call to Ukraine. Why? Because Trump was looking over his shoulder at Joe Biden. It was Joe Biden that Trump was kind of thought that would could beat him that he was like the biggest rival. And now you're kind of seeing that with DeSantis, where he you know. He sniped at him back in November, got a lot of pushback. And Stephanie can talk about this, too. I mean, she talked to a lot of Republicans, said even even Trump loyalists down here in Palm Beach County saying, hey, I love Trump, but he, he can't be doing this. Um, and then he kind of backed off and now he's back at it again. And I think it's because he senses like he did four years ago that Joe Biden was his big threat. I think he does sense that DeSantis is his big threat, his big rival. One thing about Trump is you never really have to wonder what he's thinking about. He always seems to just come right out and say it. And he definitely seems to be uh, thinking quite a lot about DeSantis and trying to send some some warning shots at him. You know, the best way to win is to never actually have to to play the game. And if he can scare DeSantis out of the race, uh, maybe, uh, you know, he, he doesn't uh, have that much of a competition here. So uh, we'll see. I, I don't know. It doesn't seem like DeSantis has rattled uh, too much. Uh, he was asked about some of Trump's comments uh, this week, and he just sort of shrugged it off and said the people of Florida have rendered their verdict on his COVID performance. And he was uh, reelected by a huge uh, margin, and he just keeps pointing to what he calls the, the scoreboard here, uh, and it's a pretty effective reply. Well, another issue that always is prominent in GOP politics is guns, and Florida lawmakers delved into the gun debate again this week in rolling out a plan to allow people to carry weapons without a permit. The so-called constitutional carry bill has been endorsed by uh, Governor DeSantis. It was released shortly before the fifth anniversary of the school shooting uh, in Parkland, Florida, which seemed to be a turning point for the gun debate here in this state. After Parkland, GOP lawmakers approved new gun control measures for the first time in memory. Now they're moving towards looser gun laws again. Stephanie, does it seem like the memory of Parkland is fading and we're going back to the sort of the pre-Parkland status quo on guns in Florida? Well, you know, I wanted to start out with laying out what Republicans are necessarily proposing. They're proposing permitless carry, meaning that residents would not need a state permit with firearms training to carry weapons. You know, DeSantis has said in the past that he has supported this measure um, of constitutional carry by supporters. And, you know, ahead of the legislative session, this Republican supermajority is expected to follow through with this permitless carry law, bringing Florida to be the actually the 26th state to allow this. So the dilemma here is that gun control advocates have been pretty vocal against it ahead of the fifth anniversary of Parkland as well, you know, saying it is loosening gun restrictions. Um, we just had Florida Senator Tina Polsky proposing Jamie's law into the legislature again. 
which would require background checks on the sales of ammunition. And, you know, since Parkland, the red flag laws have been installed, including raising the age of purchasing a gun to 21. But it's important to understand, you know, after Parkland, the importance of gun control for young voters went up by a lot. You know, I could, I could tell you about pre-Parkland, but I, I was in high school when the shooting happened in Parkland. And, you know, I remember getting the alerts of when this happened while I was in class. And after Parkland, we had after active shooter drills weekly, monthly, and, and regularly. So I, I re even remember my friends in other schools texting each other, hoping we'd make it home safe. So it, it's it's relatively important for Gen Z voters. And it, it's it's on the topic of a lot of conversations. So being that it just also impacted Gen Z, the Gen Z voters, it also did impact those you know living in the era of Columbine, Sandy Hook. So it's not just my generation, but generally the people under the age of 25 Gun legislation has become very important. You know, it's unknown how it will impact voters. Just recently, I spoke to uh, U.S. Senator Ron Johnson over GOP performance in the midterms in recapturing the U.S. Senate, um, which didn't go well. And, and he was saying that the abortion decision was a lot bigger and more meaningful to a lot of voters than Republicans really thought. So this could kind of be the same impact. And, and seeing how legislation like this post-Parkland will you know, this will gauge the importance of gun legislation in the next decade, too. Yeah. And we've had, uh, sadly, a lot of shootings in this country, a lot of mass shootings. And I don't think anything um, that I can recall had quite the impact of Parkland. I mean, you had these these massive demonstrations. You had um, lawmakers coming to tour the school and still there, you know, there's still being, um, you know, blood, uh, the talking about how they, you know, saw some of that, um, when they were in there and it really profoundly affected a lot of people. And, and you really had Republican lawmakers who seemed willing, uh, for the first time in, in, in memory to, to put some restrictions on guns. It just seemed like that this was sort of a, a turning point. Um, and now you have five years later and, and it just seems like, you know, the, the House Speaker, Paul Renner, who um, who is, uh, did a press conference this week on the permitless carry bill. I mean, he was around for Parkland. He voted for the bill that went through that, that had some gun control uh, restrictions. So for him to sort of take the lead on loosening uh, gun measures, it, it's just um, this issue still seems like the the concern about gun restrictions still seems to be a very salient issue with Republicans. And it doesn't seem like um, th that uh, some of these shootings have really changed that that much. Stephanie, you're you're in South Florida. You, you know, you were you were there for uh, Parkland. It sounds like, you know, you you had some very visceral experiences with that. And, and you've seen how that shaped the political climate there. I, I imagine that there there is still, um, you know, concern in, in many of these communities about um, about how uh, guns and, and uh, safety uh, in schools, is there not? There is a lot of concern, you know, throughout my time reporting in South Florida, I've regularly gone to college campuses um, recently, FAU, where they have lots of demonstrations for their own local club in the in the college and speaking to these students, they're very concerned about gun control and speaking to students generally all throughout South Florida, they have brought this as a number one thing that they're talking about, whether it's, whether it's, you know, generally gun legislation, it is something on the top of their minds. Yeah. It, it, 
it, it it doesn't seem though that it has become like you said in talking to Johnson and others an issue though where um, lawmakers are worried that this is going to be an issue where if they're uh, you know on the wrong side of it that they're going to lose their um, positions. So it doesn't seem like enough voters are are making this front and center. Yeah, Zach, I, you know I think Stephanie brings a really important point here, and that is the generational divide. You know the key. Yeah. Age here is 35. That's the crowd that lived, that went through schooling in the age of Columbine with active shooter drills and whatnot. Um, and I, but that crowd is still not fully integrated into the political arena. And I think, you know, if you then, you know, I, I think if when this discussion comes around, let's say a decade from now, when Stephanie's generation is fully integrated. Um, and voting and whatnot, I, I think, you know, that's what we're going to really see the impact on this. I I think politicians should be very careful. I mean, short term gains. Yeah. You know, they're going to they're going to profit from this legislation and signing it and getting it approved. But these short term gains over the long term could prove you know, a little bit troublesome. Yeah, it definitely there definitely seems to be a generational uh, divide here. Uh, and it, it has only been um, five years, although that seems like a long time, but it takes a while sometimes for these things to um, to fully seep into the political process and impact it. So we'll see. Uh, well, DeSantis is supporting this gun bill as he seeks to excite the GOP base ahead of a possible presidential run. And another issue that plays well with the base is his war on woke. And Florida's universities have been the main battleground in that war lately. The governor rolled out his plan to reform universities this week. It includes limiting faculty tenure and doing away with diversity equity and inclusion programs by defunding them. That's something the governor has sort of signaled at uh, in recent weeks and making some funding requests of universities. But he kind of fully came out and said, you know, we're going to we're going to basically starve um, these programs and get rid of them. The governor's appointees also uh, removed the president of New College here in Sarasota on Tuesday as they seek to remake it into a conservative institution. New College has really become kind of an experiment in whether um, conservatives can sort of remake uh, a public university uh, in the image of uh, something that they uh, approve of. Antonio, there's a lot of the pressure on Florida's university system right now. These may be uh, the biggest changes in, in really decades. Yeah, Zach. In fact, I was talking to a friend last week and we noted when former Florida Governor Jeb Bush's FCAT crusade seemed like the most radical reform of education ever. In the rearview mirror, the FCAT, which did radically change K-12 education in the state, seemed like cosmetic window dressing compared to what DeSantis is getting done with his reforms. And Jeb, and Jeb was also heavily involved in the university system, pushed to get rid of affirmative action and things like that. You know, so, um, you know, some some people I've seen, I saw Gary Fine out with uh, Politico sort of compare these changes to, uh, you know, maybe the most substantive since Jeb 20 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> Look, and I, I noted at the DeSantis inauguration last month that Jeb Bush, had, you know, he was there with a big smile on his face and I thought at the time that it was a way of showing up Trump by gloating over a potential rival to 45. But now I'm thinking Bush just look lethal because DeSantis is pursuing the profound and transformational remaking of Florida education that Bush wanted to pursue. 
but didn't have enough of a political base or an amicable Florida Supreme Court to go along with them. Yeah, that's um, a really good point, Antonio, because Jeb pushed some of these things and they got overturned um, by the court. And there was also at that point, you know, the re- legislature was nowhere near as conservative as it is today. And you had uh, a number of more moderate Republicans who were skeptical of some of these school choice things. It, it definitely seems like the political climate um, would would be much it's much more right uh, now for this. Yeah, nor nor the public or even even the the strength of the the state teacher union. But you know, but DeSantis, you know, times have changed, and DeSantis, you know, he's aggressively pursuing a higher education strategy that has actually been on the national conservative wish list for decades. You know, when I went to college. The arch conservatives in my Cuban American family, which is pretty much everyone, warned me not to be brainwashed by communist professors. Look, you know, we may laugh, but my family was not anomaly among conservative families. And so now you have the governor and Florida lawmakers taking aim at tenure, which would allow them to turn the ranks of professors. We have the attack on diversity training, which conservatives have long viewed with suspicion, saying there are ways to enact reverse racism. And then there is the makeover, the leadership at New College. Zach, which, which you have been following very closely, I mean, that's really the biggest front in the higher education work wars that I've ever seen. I mean, you've been covering, you know, tell us, you know, what's the latest there? Yeah, so it, there was a really dramatic meeting that I was at uh, this week where you had um, six new board members who were appointed by DeSantis and a seventh who was um, a, another sort of conservative uh, intellectual aligned with them, um, who now have a majority on the board, and they are moving very swiftly and aggressively to reshape the university. You had the uh, president of the university was fired um, without cause, uh, and they also installed a new board chair and moved to install a new legal counsel. Uh, and they and they pulled in allies of DeSantis to fill some of the leadership roles. Richard Corcoran uh, is going to be the interim president of New College. Corcoran was the education commissioner, DeSantis's first education commissioner. He's a former Republican speaker of the House. Um, very well known in political circles in Florida, very conservative, very in line with DeSantis in terms of the war on woke. You know, he was going after so-called critical race theory in Florida uh, schools, very aggressive in enforcing DeSantis's efforts to keep schools open and ban mask mandates. And so Corcoran is, is, is a close ally of the governor. Putting him in charge of News College is really a sign that this is a priority for DeSantis and um, that he wants to move quickly to re- remake the school. And then they also moved to hire Bill Galvano as the uh, the college's general counsel. Galvano is the former Republican president of the Florida Senate, who's been a fundraiser and an ally uh, of DeSantis. So, you know, really, he's installing his allies here. And, you know, he put he 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 announced just 25 days ago. um, Well, 20, I guess it's 27 days ago now. But when when this meeting took place, it was 25 days ago that that, that he had these new conservative board members. um, And it, it, it took them less than a month to go in and completely reshape the college's leadership structure. So it just shows that this is a really aggressive effort to remake the college. They also talked about uh, ending the school's um, diversity program and firing four of the employees who um, are in this office of diversity. So there's you know that that element of the so-called war on woke. And um, this is just 
it has become a national story. There's national media down here covering this. There's even international media. I spoke to a reporter from Dutch Public Radio who was covering this um, because it's just kind of unprecedented. I, I you know, Nobody has been able to show me any other situation where somebody has come in and tried to completely remake a public university uh, like this and and, and uh, really uh, change the sort of ideological bent of it uh, and move from what was sort of uh, known as sort of a progressive school when it was founded as a private college in 1960 to something that they're comparing to Hillsdale College, which is a Christian conservative private school in Michigan. So this has kind of become a showcase for DeSantis and an experiment in, in remaking uh, higher education uh, and one that a lot of people think that he'll talk about uh, if he runs for president. And like you said, compare with Trump and say, hey, look what I did to really um, to really live out these uh, concerns that conservatives have about uh, higher education while you were, um, you know, uh, talking about it. So um, pretty, pretty fascinating uh, developments that are taking place here. Uh, we'll move on to our number section here. Uh, Stephanie, you want to tell us about your number? Yeah. So my number was 10,033. And the reason I chose this number is because this is the number of voters that Rick Scott um, won against Bill Nelson in 2018 for the U.S. Senate race. You know, and I, I think this is also increasingly relevant to start looking at Rick Scott now that he is on the 2024 ballot and we know he's running for re-election for the U.S. Senate. So this past year, however, in the midterms, you know, he had a pretty bruising midterm season after leading the National Republican Senatorial Committee and, you know, failing to recapture the Senate. He also got a lot of criticism for the proposal to sunset legislation after five years and revisit it. And, you know, this could potentially uh, include federal programs like VA care, Social Security, Medicare. So on top of that, he also failed to take on Mitch McConnell, who even just took him out of the Commerce Committee. So right now, you know, this isn't a good time for Scott right now. But ahead of this election, it's important to look at what is Rick Scott doing into 2024? You know, I just spoke to him on the phone the other day. And what was interesting is I was asking him whether he would endorse Trump since Trump is the first to enter into the presidential race. And he was been known as a longtime Trump ally. He said on the phone that he was focused on his race and, you know, he didn't did not directly answer or say if he would officially endorse Trump. So that was also something interesting to note. That is interesting because there, there doesn't seem to be any love lost between Rick Scott and DeSantis, they've kind of had a rivalry um, ever since DeSantis was elected uh, governor, and it was kind of a rough uh, transition from Scott to DeSantis, and I think they both have bigger ambitions. So uh, you, you think that Scott might want to put his hat in with Trump, but then there's also talk that maybe Scott is still uh, considering a, a presidential run, although he had a pretty, as you noted, a pretty bad um, midterm cycle as the head of the Republican Senate campaign arm uh, and has been talking more about running for re-election uh, to the Senate than any presidential ambitions. But who knows? That That is kind of interesting that he didn't want to get behind um, Trump uh, Trump's campaign too early. Antonio, what uh, what's your number here? Well, I had 11,780 and you weren't too far off because like Stephanie, I'm talking about a vote margin. In this case, it's in as, quote unquote, I just want to find 11,780 votes. <laughs> and that is what former President Trump told Georgia election officials in early January 2021 
as he pressured them to find him enough votes to win that state's 16 electoral votes. That statement, what Trump calls yet another quote-unquote perfect phone call, is what the House committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol singled out as evidence of Trump's desperate, futile, corrupt, and, and, and they think illegal attempt to overturn the 2020 election in a larger coup attempt. And we know he said it because it's on tape, the whole conversation. And that audio recording is very reminiscent of Nixon's Watergate smoking gun tape. Now, it's not just the House committee that is investigating that conversation. Georgia prosecutors are currently assessing whether the former president committed a crime as well. It's not only it's not the only investigation of the former president. No, far from it. You know, this week, media reports surfaced that Manhattan District Attorney's Office is again looking at the so-called hush money payment to a porn star. And the Justice Department special counsel is looking at the January 6th violence and Trump's role, which is the substance of criminal referrals from the House panel. That special counsel is also looking at Trump's keeping of classified documents. Now, there is a special counsel also, a separate one, also looking at President Biden's possession of documents, too. And we know that former Vice President Mike Pence also has revealed he had classified materials. But we have to caution our listeners there's a real difference between what Trump did and also the cases of Biden and Pence. Biden and Pence voluntarily turned over the documents when they say they found them. Trump did not. He claimed ownership and defied orders from the National Archives to, to turn them over. Trump says he is the most investigated president and former president ever. That is the absolute truth. He was <laughs> impeached twice. There was a 22-month mold investigation. But here's the thing. So far, the only real ramification or charges to land were against Trump's business, the Trump Organization, which has been ordered to pay a $1.6 million fine for tax fraud after being convicted late last year. Now, the big question, will other charges ever be filed against him? That's where I bring up the 11,780 vote conversation in Georgia. Keep an eye on Georgia and, the, and that demand for those votes. That's the bellwether, I think. If Georgia prosecutors charge Trump, it would be historic. No president or former president has ever been charged with a crime. We come close with Richard Nixon and Bill Clinton, but they cut deals not to get indicted. A prosecution in Georgia or charges in Georgia may also well open a floodgate. You know, they'd be the first out of the gate, and who knows, others will follow. Now, if they don't file charges, if they conclude that what Trump did may have been improper, but not criminal, then it is a win for Trump, and he will claim complete and total exoneration. Where have you heard that before? So <laughs> either way, prosecutors in the Atlanta area say their decision is imminent, so we are about to find out. That That's a big one right there. You know, you're right. I mean, uh, there's been a lot of investigations. Trump isn't wrong about that. And, uh, and so far, they, most of them have, have fizzled out without uh, any any penalties here. But this one seems to be uh, a pretty significant one. So we'll see what happens. My number is eight. That's how many jurors would have to approve a death penalty verdict under new legislation filed this week. The bill would do away with unanimous jury verdicts for the death penalty and allow it if eight out of 12 jurors approve. If the legislation goes through, it will return Florida's death penalty system to how it was six years ago before the Florida Supreme Court ruled that death penalty verdicts must be unanimous. 
The court has become more conservative and recently indicated that the death penalty could be allowed without unanimous jury verdicts. Governor DeSantis says he supports implementing the death penalty without a unanimous verdict. And interest in returning to that old system has really increased since Parkland, which we talked about earlier. This is still you know, it shows how Parkland is still having uh, ramifications. You know, we saw the sentencing of the Parkland school shooter, Nicholas Cruz, who got life in prison rather than death after a jury wasn't unanimous on a death verdict. And that really caused a lot of outrage. His acts were heinous. And a lot of people uh, thought that he deserved the death penalty, Parkland families um, and and many others. And so that has led to a real uh, push to to change the death penalty system back to, to how it was. So the death penalty debate, along with the gun debate, is another example of how Parkland continues to reverberate five years later. That wraps up another episode of Inside Florida Politics. I want to thank our audio production guru, Thomas Cordy. Thanks to all of you for listening. We're out of here.